0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 11. We're in John chapter 11, looking at the resurrection of Lazarus this morning. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life that you've conquered death and the grave, that you bring us hope and living hope in our lives. So God, as we go through our relationship with you, and sometimes there is that death of our assumptions and expectations and the death of our timeline, that we would see that you're working for your glory and for our greater good. We know it's your spirit that leads us and guides us into truth, so would you send your spirit And teach us and instruct us. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever I'm driving back and forth to Denver, I've decided to go ahead and always use the Waze app. W-A-Z-E. If you're not familiar with the Waze app, basically what it does is it tries to find the fastest way to get back and forth in in traffic. And it's pretty effective. Yesterday, I was coming back from my parents' house in South Denver, and there is construction now, as you know, from Castle Rock all the way to Monument. If you could lose your salvation, you'd probably lose it in that section, right? <laughs> so I've got the Waze app, and it's kind of like the all-knowing guide right in your car. And this voice comes to you and says, look out, there's a hazard on your right. You know police officer reported ahead. And I don't know how it knows all this, but I don't really care. It knows, right? So I'm coming up to Larkspur, and sure enough, brake lights, and I hear this voice from Waze saying, you will be slowed in traffic for 11 minutes. And that just helped my mental state a lot. So I can handle 11 minutes. I literally looked at the clock, and it said 1222. I was like, okay, I can do the math, and the traffic will get going, But I remember years back before there was Waze app and those types of things, you would hit traffic on I-25 and you just really didn't know how long you were stuck. You're like, I could be here 15 minutes or I could be here 15 hours. I don't don't really know how long I'm gonna be in this place of gridlock. And sometimes in our relationship uh, with the Lord, we hit a trial and all of a sudden the brake lights go on and God normally doesn't say, hey, Eric, you're gonna be here for 11 weeks and then everything's going to be fine, right? What does the Lord do? He says, "Trust me. Trust me. I'm not going to give you all of the details. I want you to trust me." We look at a family this morning in John 11, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Mary was known for sitting at the feet of Jesus and hearing his teaching. Martha was known for being busy with the tasks, but devoted to Christ to try to make her home to be a refuge for Jesus. But everything hits the fan in this moment, and Lazarus's life is in jeopardy. And that's where we pick up the story this morning. In verse 1, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister, Martha. So Lazarus is sick. Mary and Martha in Bethany. Bethany is just outside of Jerusalem, east of Jerusalem, two miles beyond the Mount of Olives. Sickness can come at no notice. It seems to be very serious for Lazarus. It's obviously life-threatening. And when it comes, it comes quickly in our lives. In verse 2, It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. This is recorded for us in John chapter 12. We're going to study it in a few weeks, where Mary anoints the feet of Jesus with very expensive ointment, preparing his body for burial. But verse 2 identifies the Mary that Jesus is talking about to the reader. Mary was a a common name, and Mary was known for her love for Jesus. This is the Mary who anointed the feet of Jesus. In verse three, therefore the sisters went to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. So they send the message to Jesus, the one you love is sick. Lazarus is sick. We know Jesus has left Jerusalem to go to the wilderness. He's been rejected in Jerusalem. He goes to the wilderness where John the Baptist had been ministering. So it's a bit of a journey to get this word to Jesus. The message is filled with a little bit of a caveat, isn't it? The one that you love is is sick. And with that is this assumption or expectation that because Jesus loves Lazarus, that he's gonna come and heal him. And if you're taking notes, in order for us to experience God's work in our lives, a lot of times there has to be the death of our assumptions and expectations. We maybe haven't thought it through or don't even realize it in our lives, but our understanding of God loving us, we interpret that that he's going to do certain things in our lives. And we're going to find as we read through this that God loves Lazarus very much, But he's going to work in Lazarus' life in a different way than Mary and Martha would have expected. They want Jesus to come right now and heal him. And he's going to delay. And Lazarus is going to pass away. It's kind of this idea of, Lord, I'm single. I love you. I've devoted my life uh, towards you. I'm trying to live in sexual integrity. So I assume and have the expectation that you're going to bring a godly spouse into my life. Now, many times the Lord does, but is God required to do that? Sometimes, does he call someone to a life of of singleness? Absolutely, right? There may be this expectation of saying, well, God, I love you and I I serve you, so I'm assuming that there's never going to be any marital conflict in my relationship with my spouse. Now, is that necessarily going to be what God does in, in your relationship? But maybe you've put that assumption there. You've you've connected that to the Lord. Kind of put that string to the Lord and saying, I'm assuming or expecting for you to do this in in our lives. And we may have this understanding that because God loves us, that it's always going to result in financial breakthrough. Right? Or there are believers that sometimes don't have financial breakthrough. Absolutely. So you get the idea. Or maybe it is a physical challenge in going, God, because you love me, you're going to heal me. I know that you love me, so now I've interpreted this to then come up with my own plan and agenda of how God is going to work. And there's no doubt that God's going to work. There's no doubt that his glory is going to be revealed, but many times we have to surrender our will to his will. And that's a process. Sometimes it's a wrestling match with the Lord, isn't it? Of God, I really desire this, and I really want this, but I see who you are, so I'm willing to trust you. I'm willing to trust that you're going to work in and and through my life. I don't know about you, but nothing in my life has really gone the way that I would expect it to. Man, when I was 21, I had it all figured out, how I thought my life was going to go. But it's been better. It's been different, but it's been better. Not necessarily easier. Not necessarily more comfortable, but better because God's glory has been involved. His good and perfect plan has been involved. So verse 4, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This message going back to Mary and Martha must have been a great encouragement. This sickness is not unto death. That is the result that Jesus would have in mind after raising Lazarus from the dead. But this was not fulfilled how you think it would be to the original hearers. The sickness is not unto death, but here's what's gonna happen. This sickness is unto the glory of God. And that's what we need to understand As God is working and his hand is upon our lives that it's the purpose for his glory. Our lives are part of a bigger story, and that's God's story to declare his love to the nations. See, if I don't realize that, I've missed the big picture. I've missed that God's going to use all this suffering. He's going to use these details. He's going to use the blessings because he wants to tell a story through our lives of of his glory. This sickness is going to result in the glory of Jesus, the glory of the Son of God. I think deep down that's what we want from our lives, isn't it? Isn't that what we pray for? Go, God, I want you to use my life. I want my life to testify to who you are, Jesus. And and the way that that happens is God working through trial and difficulty. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Jesus emphasizes his love for this family this sibling group. Interesting, Jesus uses the word agape when he says that he loved Martha, her sister, and Lazarus. When they used the word love, they didn't use the word agape. Jesus deepens their understanding of his love by saying, I have unconditional love for you. Agape is, is God's love. It's this deep reservoir of love, the height and the depth and the width of God's love. But verse six doesn't seem like it fits with verse five. I love you guys as a family, but I'm not responding to your urgent need. In fact, I'm going to stay here for two more days and I'm going to wait this out. So second thing to write down this morning is the death of our timetable, the death of our timetable. We want God to work by 5 p.m. this afternoon, right? By the time I sit down for dinner, I want this whole thing with Lazarus to be sorted out because my heart is aching and I'm scared and my brother might might pass away. God, I have this, this urgent need in my life. For some of you this morning, you came to church with a very pressing urgent need that's taking place. This isn't in the backdrop, it's in the forefront and saying, Lord, would you please do this quickly? And oftentimes, God's timetable of working in that situation is different than our timetable most always and God delays for a specific purpose here says I'm not going to go right now because I have a greater plan and when God's timetable doesn't meet our timetable what do we result what's that space in between it's called waiting and it's very challenging For Mary and Martha, I'm sure every hour they're looking out the window. Is he here? Is he coming? Does he love us? Why doesn't he show up? Where is he at? And Lazarus is getting worse and worse and worse. Come on, come on, come on. Aren't you going to meet this need? Aren't you going to show up in my life? But God is in the waiting, He's in that space in between. He's doing a work in our lives. He's challenging our, our trust in Him, even though it's difficult. He knows exactly what He's doing. In Isaiah 55, it says that God's ways are not our ways. As the heavens are high above the earth, so are God's ways higher than ours. We don't have His perspective, we don't understand what He's doing. Who's been God's counselor? Well, we've all tried, but thankfully He doesn't take our counsel. His ways are not our ways. He, he, he goes about things on his, his own timetable. And we have to be willing to surrender our timetable, to allow the, the death of our timetable to take place before we enter into the glory of his plan. In verse seven, then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again. Jesus says, all right, now it's time to go to Judea, to go to Jerusalem, to go to Bethany. And the disciples say, well, Jesus, don't you remember recently they tried to stone you there? Like, we're not sure we're going to make it out of Jerusalem. And reminding Christ of the danger, this is not a safe place for us to go. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus is speaking practically, but also spiritually. He's saying, guys, it's best to do your business during the day. It's best to travel during the day. And that's true, isn't it? It's safer to be out and about and doing all the things on a particular day during the day instead of at in the middle of the night. At 2 2 a.m. when a lot of crazy things happen. So Jesus is speaking practically, but even more so, he's saying, guys, I'm the light of the world, and it's not my time yet, so it's going to be safe for us to go to Jerusalem, to go to Bethany. In verse 11, these things he said, and after that he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Jesus calls Lazarus his friend our friend Lazarus the creator of the universe God in human flesh says I love Lazarus and also Lazarus is my friend later on Jesus is going to say that a friend you lay down your life for your friends that those who obey his commands are his friends that God views companionship with us as his disciples as his followers pretty incredible And as we go through trial and difficulty, we need to remember that God does love us, that he is our companion, that he is is with us, that he allows us to have fellowship with him. So Jesus says, Lazarus is gonna sleep and I'm gonna wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about taking a rest and sleep. This would be pretty confusing if you're in the sandals of the disciples. Well, Lazarus sleeps. Well, that sounds like a good thing. You know, if he's sick and he's sleeping, that means he's going to get well. I don't think we need to risk our lives to go to Bethany at this point. But Jesus was speaking of Lazarus's death. He, he likens Lazarus' death to sleep because he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. This is a temporary state for Lazarus, just like you would Take a nap. Christ clears it up in verse 14. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. Don't you love that? You know, Christ is like, all right, enough of this uh, figurative speech. Let me just tell you what's really going on. Lazarus is dead. Jesus knows everything about this trial that Mary and Martha are going through. I don't think that anybody came to Jesus. And gave him an update and said, okay, Lazarus has died. He's God. He knows. He knew exactly what was going to take place as he delayed for two days that Lazarus was going to pass away. That by the time he got there, that Lazarus would already be in the grave for four days. This is all part of his plan. And church, this is encouraging. God may not be doing what we like with the information, but he knows all of the information about our trial. He knew the car was going to break down, right? He knew that the job was going to be lost. He knew that the diagnosis of of cancer. He knew the relational turmoil that this particular relationship would be in. He knows. He knows it all. No one has to inform him about what's going on with Lazarus or what's going on in our lives as well. Verse 15, And am I glad? And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Third thing to meditate on this morning is the glory of his greater plan. So there's the death of our assumptions. There's the death of our expectations. There's the death of our timetable. That has to be surrendered. But then there's the holding on to that God is working in this situation. There's the glory of his greater plan. And and this is a pretty heavy statement that Jesus makes. I'm glad for your sakes that I wasn't there so that you may believe. Christ is more concerned with the disciples and Mary and Martha having deepened faith than present comfort. And the same is true for Jesus today. And part of his glorious greater plan is he's more concerned that we would grow in trust in him then for us to be comfortable. And this is where it gets confusing for us because we look at Jesus and we go, well, if you love me, you want me to be comfortable. You want the path of least resistance, right? Right, Jesus? And Jesus is like, not always. I want to comfort you, but I don't want to necessarily make you comfortable. What God's bigger plan is, is growing us in trust, growing us in dependency. So he puts us in situations that's gonna grow our trust. Think about it this way. You go, man, I I feel like I just need some things to change in my life physically. Let's say it's New Year, so so I decided I'm gonna go sign up for a a gym. And I need a personal trainer that's gonna hold me accountable and give me technique. And So you go for the whole enchilada, the the whole plan with the gym and and the trainer. And about three weeks into this plan, you're like, I don't really understand what's going on because all the trainer does is make me comfortable. Like I know my technique's not quite right on my squats and my sit-ups, but the trainer never says anything and always just goes, that's a good job. You're doing a good job on those squats. You're doing a great job on that, on that sit-up. And on your meal plan, he has got an app for you where you're having to put in everything that you eat and you measure the ounces of everything, and you're sending that to the trainer, and he's looking at the app, and he's not saying anything about the Doritos or the ice cream, and and that's not part of the meal plan. That's not part of this nutrition plan that was happening, and before long, you'd be like, what the heck, right? Why am I paying all this money to this gym and, and this trainer? All he wants to do is make me comfortable. How much Would God love us if he was only concerned with making us comfortable? He's a loving father and because he loves us, sometimes he's gonna intentionally make us uncomfortable for future growth. A good trainer is gonna say, I want full range of motion on that sit up. You're really only giving me half a sit up there. Come on, let's go, let's do this. The spinach is not gonna kill you. Sure tastes like it's gonna kill me, right? But that's a good trainer. He, he sees the future growth, and he says, it's worth it in your life, so I'm going to challenge you, and God will, will do the same thing. Uh, a friend of mine, every year, he'll, he'll ask me, and he'll say, Eric, is there a verse that's on your heart this year that I can be in prayer for you about? And he takes it really seriously, and him and his wife uh, pray for me and my family every day. Which is, so He asked me a couple of times coming into this year, what verse is on your heart? And I'd really been thinking through Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 to trust the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he'll direct your path. And sure enough, as I went into the new year, I could feel the season change in my life. Have you ever felt that where you go, okay, it's a a turning of the page And I found myself in a challenging season. I'm being challenged right now in my my own life, in a lot of different areas. And I'm thankful for the challenge, even though it's uncomfortable, because it is causing me to press in to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. I've had to examine, do I really trust the Lord with all of my heart? Or am I trusting the Lord with 80% of my heart? But that's coming through challenge. It's coming through, through difficulty. So I'm preaching to myself this morning, right? I need to remember that God is more concerned with me growing in trust than simply being comfortable. So verse 16, then Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas gets a a bad route many times, but he's the realist in the group. There's not a lot of optimism inside of Thomas. He's like, okay, let's go to Jerusalem and I'm willing to die with, with Christ. And he's fully committed, and in his mind, he feels like this is probably going to result in our death. So when Jesus came, he found that he'd already been in the tomb four days. Why is this part of God's plan? Because. Lazarus's body would start to decompose and decay after four days of being in the grave, especially in this hot Middle Eastern climate. So when Jesus raises him from the dead, it shows his power over the grave. They're expecting a, a decomposed corpse, and Jesus raises him from the dead, and he's fully alive. So God purposefully waited those four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the woman around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. This is part of the Jewish culture, is that many family and friends would stop what they're doing and come around the grieving family. So many are gathered around Mary and Martha. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. So Martha gets word that Jesus is coming, and she doesn't wait. She runs to go and meet Jesus. It's possible that Mary hadn't heard yet. Mary chooses to stay in the house. Please hear this. This is a great example for us with Martha. When you're going through intense grief, especially the loss of a loved one, it can be difficult to run to Jesus. Sometimes there's this feeling inside of us of, God, why did you let this loved one pass away? And grief can do crazy things to our hearts and and our minds. And follow the example of Martha and say, as hard as it is, I want to run to Jesus and have an honest, difficult conversation with him. In verse 21, Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She gets right to it. And she doesn't pretend. She is honest and transparent. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. God wants us to be honest with him. Respectful, but honest and transparent. All relationship, real relationship, requires honesty and transparency, doesn't it? So if we're going to have a deep relationship with the Lord, we have to be honest, and we have to be transparent. Martha, I'm sure, knew the Old Testament. She knew Job's story of Job having all of his kids pass away. Job's response was, the Lord gives and takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. She could have quoted Job. She could have said, okay, I'm going into Job mode. The Lord gives and takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But that's not where she was at. That was genuine for Job, but that's not where her heart was at. Where her heart was at was, Lord, you let me down. If you would have been here, my brother would have not died. And that can be difficult to articulate to the Lord. But if you're feeling that way, or you have felt that way, it's good to talk that over with the Lord. God, I I expected you to show up in this situation, and you didn't show up the way that I thought that you would. In verse 22, But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. just saying, Whatever you ask of the father, he'll grant it to you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She's saying, I know he's going to rise again at the end of all times. The last day he, he, he will rise with, with believers In verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. This is the fifth I am statement in the gospel of John. The first Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. Then the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd. And now I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus is gonna use the death of Lazarus to show that he has power over the grave, that he truly is the resurrection and the life, that he can give eternal life to those who will believe in him, those who will trust him uh, for salvation, the resurrection unto eternal life. What an amazing savior we have, that he can conquer sin and the grave and death and give us this promise of I am the resurrection and the life. And as you believe in me, though you die, you're going to die you will have everlasting life. You'll be raised to everlasting life. In verse 26, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So those that believe in me, he who lives and believes in me shall never die. This promise of eternal life. And then he asks Mary right in the midst of this grief, do you believe this? Do you trust this? And I think that that's a question for all of us to wrestle with. Do we believe this? Jesus, she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. So she responds, yes, Lord, I do believe. I believe you're the Christ, the Messiah, that you're the Son of God who's come into the world. Verse 28, and when she'd said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. So Martha goes to Mary and says, Jesus is here and wants to meet with you. What a wonderful sister, pointing her uh, to Christ. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. So she's ready to meet with Jesus as well. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, she is going to the tomb to weep there. You've noticed at a funeral, who's everybody watching? You try not to watch, but you are. You're watching the one that's been affected the most. You've got your eye on the spouse that has lost their wife, lost their husband. You're watching the kids who've lost a parent. You're watching the parents as they're burying a child, As we do memorials and funeral services here, and you go out to the foyer, everybody's watching the immediate family, and that's what takes place here. Is Mary gets up quickly, and she goes, and they're like, "Okay, we need to keep an eye on her. She must be going to the tomb of of Lazarus." In verse thirty-two, then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, "Lord." If you had been here, my brother would have not died. This is the voice of frustration and brokenness. She had sat at the feet of Jesus and heard her his words. Now she's falling on her face before Jesus in desperation. Verse 33, therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. This is an amazing display of Christ's compassion. As Mary comes and she's broken at his feet and she's weeping, and the family and the friends are, are weeping, Scripture tells us that Jesus groaned in his spirit and he was troubled. In the Greek, the idea is that this, this deep sigh that comes from your gut and your heart. We've all been there. We're, we're crushed by grief on someone else's behalf, and we don't know what to say, and we just go, ah, oh, right? Oh, man, that, that hurts. And a lot of times, the tears start to, to come in those moments. And we examine this, and we go, why would Jesus be crying? Cry, Jesus isn't crying for his own behalf because... He knows he's gonna raise Lazarus from the dead in just a moment. He knows Lazarus is just fine. Lazarus is safe in in eternity. The reason he's weeping is because Mary doesn't know that. Martha doesn't know that. This group of family and friends don't know that. And he's grieved because they're grieved. He's weeping because they're weeping. So we have our savior who created the universe, who's gonna die upon the cross who had the power to be able to cleanse the temple with a whip, but yet the compassion and the gentleness of Christ where he's crying and he's weeping with those who weep. Paul would write and say, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, and Jesus fulfills that perfectly. He could have easily said, hey guys, it's gonna be all right. Let's just get to the tomb and I'm gonna fix this. But he wanted to stop and be with them in this moment and have compassion upon them. So if you are in suffering, know that your savior understands your suffering. Jesus is a man of sorrows and he's acquainted with grief. He's really the only one that understands. And he has compassion and he weeps with you. That's amazing. And it's also an example for us as believers is sometimes the appropriate thing is to say nothing. It's almost harder to not go into preach it mode or fix it mode and just say, man, this really is difficult. This really stinks. And my heart is broken for you, and I'm going to weep with you. I'm going to just sit here, and I'm going to cry with you. I'm not going to try to answer this for you. I'm just going to come alongside of you in this moment. And Thankfully, Jesus is that and does that for us. In verse 37, and some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? He heals the blind. Couldn't he have healed Lazarus? And this is interesting because they have a box. They have a paradigm. They have a Jesus can do this. He can heal the sick. He can heal the blind. But they're not even considering that Jesus can raise from the dead. And that's exactly the way that we approach Jesus a lot of times. We go, well, I, I know, Jesus, you could do this and this. And we maybe have three or four options. And God's saying, I've got infinite options that you can't even begin to comprehend. They have no idea what God has in store. Then Jesus, again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. This is how they would, would bury. We're similar to how Christ was buried. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. I like how the old King James translates this. It says, he stinketh. It's literally what it says. She's like, Lord, he stinketh. Like, we can't open the grave. This decomposition has taken place, and there's just a stench that is gonna come from this. And Christ responds, Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe you would see the glory of God? Belief and seeing the glory of God are tied together. As we believe in the Lord, as we trust in the Lord, rely upon him with all of our heart, we're going to see the glory of God. Now don't misunderstand that. It's not that our belief is the fulfillment of our expectations and desires. That's not what's the promise. The promise is, as we believe, we're going to see the glory of God. We're going to see more of him. We're going to see what he desires for us to see. verse 41, then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. We don't always have to pray with our head bowed and our eyes closed. Why do we do that? I think to Help us not get distracted. I think a Sunday school teacher probably came up with it with, with a bunch of five-year-olds running around, like, let's bow your head and close your eyes, right? Try to help the kids be able to focus on prayer. Jesus lifts his eyes to heaven as he's talking with, with his father. Give it a shot. Look around. Look at Pike's Peak. Look up at the sky and, and begin to talk with the Lord. Verse 42, and I know that you, are always, that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Father, I know you hear me, but I'm saying this for the benefit of those who are listening. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He literally shouted this voice of victory, Lazarus, come forth. This is a fourth thing to meditate on this morning. It's the glory of his victory over death. In this moment, then Lazarus is going to come out of the grave. And by Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, he's foreshadowing his own resurrection, where he was buried for three days and risen from the dead. Why is there death? Because sin. The wages of sin is death. The paycheck for sin is death. And Jesus took sin upon himself on the cross, was died and buried and rose again, where he conquers sin and death. Christ is risen from the dead. Scriptures tell us he's the first fruits of the resurrection, which means we're going to be risen in a similar fashion to Jesus. First Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 tell us with this trump, the last trump that's going to be sounded, that the dead in Christ are going to rise first. The rapture of the church, the church being caught up, and all the believers at that moment, are going to rise from the dead and receive their glorified body. That then raises the question, what happens to a believer when they die? Are they in some kind of weird soul sleep? The scripture also tells us to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So as soon as we die, our spirit goes home to be with the Lord, but we don't get our glorified body till the second coming of Christ. But remember, heaven is totally different when it comes to time. A thousand years is like a day to the Lord, and that's an illustration. It's probably much more like an eternal now. I don't think anyone's up in heaven going, man, I sure hope, I sure can't wait for my glorified body to get here. Sure hope it gets here soon, right? It's probably much more of an eternal now type of experience. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers is far greater than the resurrection of Lazarus. Why? Because he had to die again gets to experience death twice. He's raised back to this life, but we're raised unto eternal life to never pass pass away again. Augustine, he put it this way. He once remarked that if Jesus had not said Lazarus' name, all would have come out from the graves. That's the power of Christ. He is going to empty the grave. He's taken the, the sting out of death. So verse 44 and he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave cloths and his face was wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. <laughs> what an experience for Lazarus, right? It says his hands and feet are wrapped up like a mummy. He's also got cloth around his face and he's trying to get out of this cave. Everybody's so stunned. They don't know what to do. So Jesus has to give some instructions. Guys, take the grave clothes off of him, Right? And as they do, and they take the grave clothes off them, they don't find decay. They find Jesus completely restoring him unto life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Let's look at verse 45, and then we'll be done. It says, Then many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen these things Jesus did believed in him. All of this multitude, this family and friends that came to comfort Mary and Martha, they witnessed the resurrection of Christ and they believed. That's the glory of God. God did something that was better than what Mary and Martha were asking and what they were expecting. They got to experience their brother being raised from the dead. They got to witness their family and friends becoming believers in Jesus Christ because of this power of the resurrection. And church, death and glory go hand in hand. They go hand in hand. And it's the death of our expectations. It's the death of our assumptions. It's the death of our timetable. And then it's embracing that God has a plan. It's embracing that God is working and saying this is gonna result for your greater glory and for my good. And realizing my little life, my little story is part of this bigger story of God declaring his glory. So let's stand together, let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. And that our lives are gonna end with eternal life that what Lazarus experienced, we're going to experience on a much greater scale. Father, I pray for those this morning that are in that place of difficulty, in that place of challenge, in that place of waiting, that you would meet them. And we acknowledge and we recognize that you are in the waiting. And we choose to trust you because you're good, to trust you with all of our hearts. So we love you and we thank you. And Jesus' name, amen.